Welcome to episode 87 of the AAEM Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. AAEM RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Caitlin Parks, a resident at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as current AAEM RSA board member at large, speaks with Dr. Frasa Adamakis. Today, Drs. Parks and Adamakis discuss progressions from residency to junior faculty with on-shift teaching, mentoring, and career development in part two of their podcast. Hi, I'm Caitlin Parks, a PGY3 at Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined today by Dr. Frasso Adamakis. Okay, let's shift gears into kind of um, some more development and being um, kind of a good doctor, a great doctor, like excellent clinician and, and also educator. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of um, junior faculty, which is going to be something that many of the residents listening to this are going to be either next year or the year after, um, or maybe a few years down the road. I wanted to ask you a little bit about on-shift teaching and how you approach your on-shift teaching, both at the bedside and maybe in kind of your doc box or at the computer. And you're saying from the perspective of a junior faculty, like how can rising junior faculty be good educators? Yeah. And I, so there's different ways. I mean, I'm N of one, right? There's different ways to do this. I think, especially being now in my position more doing a lot of education, how I teach residents and students and PAs in my department, we have PAs, we don't have nurse practitioners. So the PAs are under my responsibility as well for education. So I think there's a couple different things that I like to do. For me, and maybe this is becoming old school, I hope not, but a big thing for me is you need a differential and plan. I want to hear all of my learners, students, PAs, residents, give me a differential and give me a plan. Because if you don't have a differential, your plan is not going to be accurate. And you make your differential based off your history and physical. So this concept I'll have to explain a lot to PAs and residents and students, and this is where I'll spend a lot of time talking. So what's your differential? okay, I've got a medical student or maybe a PA brand new at a PA school that you hired in your emergency department and you have to do a lot of training with them. They have chest pain, it radiates to the back. Uh, I don't know, I guess aortic dissection is on my differential. Okay, what's your plan? Are you CTAing them? Are you not? So is aortic dissection on your differential? Why or why not? How are we gonna approach your differential and plan, right? So there's a lot of discussion to be had there, right? Obviously, we know not every chest pain rating to the back needs a CT angio, but it can be difficult for a junior learner to understand, okay, so how am I going to figure out who am I working up for a dissection and who am I not? Who am I working up for ACS or, um, you know, whatever other things that might be on your differential? So I think there's a lot of value in education talking to them. How does the patient look? Are they sick? Are they hypertensive? Do they have risk factors? Um, how bad is the pain? Has it been going on for months? And Aortic dissection, I, I don't want to get into it because it's just one of those diseases that you get on uh, EM docs on Facebook and all of the various different groups and you hear all of these aortic dissection cases and I'm just like, I wonder how many dissections I've missed because the way that it presents is just so crazy. But my point is, is that talking about differential implant is important for them to learn and for your patients because and this is a fun exercise. Uh, this is a way that I teach that I like to run through with my learners. 
So headache, let's take the chief complaint of headache. What's the differential for headache? Mm, besides just, you know, tension headache and migraine. So it could be migraine. Imaging is not gonna help me diagnose a migraine, right? Um, let's say my resident was like, uh, it's a headache and I want a CAT scan. And I'm like, okay, what's your differential? And they didn't really think of one. So we go through the exercise. Okay, migraine, is CAT scan MRI gonna diagnose it? No. Pseudotumor cerebri, what's the test of choice? LP. Uh, meningitis, what's the test of choice? LP. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, what's the test of choice? Controversial, maybe we could get away with CT angio, maybe not. This is a super big topic that's like a two hour lecture on its own, but let's say CT, LP, maybe CT angio. Um, cavernous sinus thrombosis, CTV. Uh, as you can see where I'm going with a stroke, MRI, right? Most CAT scans are not going to show much for an ischemic stroke. So I'm taking one and I can kind of keep going on with this exercise, but you get my point. There is no one test in medicine that will make you not miss anything. So your learner has to understand to really respect that differential in plan because you will miss things if you don't. So I actually am usually at the computer with my learner having this conversation. Sometimes I'll do it with the patient, but for me, I don't want to embarrass my learner and I want to empower my learner with their patient. So if I'm, especially being a young woman physician myself, it can be hard for my young female or not even female. I have some young male physicians who just look super young. Uh, they might be short, they might be skinny, or they might just have a very young appearance and I want to empower them in front of their patients. So I don't really like pimping them and I don't think any of us pimp anymore, but I don't usually like to have those conversations in front of the patient because it doesn't empower that relationship. So I usually have it at the computer and we can also look over labs, right? So if they've already done labs and I've been watching the labs in the background, so what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Um, it wasn't on your differential. And I think there's a ton of conversation to be had at the computer with the labs talking about differential and plan. So to be honest, that's my style. That's where I like to do a lot of that um, with the patient. And sometimes I will bring the resident with me to see the patient. So sometimes I'll bring them if, um, I'll have them come if I notice something different on my physical exam, especially asthmatics, breathing, increased work of breathing, that stuff that could be very easily missed. So I'll bring them back and I'll, um, talk and I'll end up pointing out, again, not always in front of the patient because I want them to be empowered. A lot of times what I'll do with the patient, so you know, we might do ultrasounds, but I'll usually bring them back when I'm having certain conversations with patients that I want the resident to watch and learn because that's your second year resident, like you're pretty, you're getting pretty good at the medicine. You're, you're knowing most of that stuff, but where you still have a lot to learn is how do I um, talk to them? How do I discharge them? What should discharge instructions look like? That's not something that we teach in residency or medical school. And I think that's something we overlook. So bring them to the bedside and say, hey, Miss um, X, your CAT scan was totally normal. Everything looks good. So I want you to feel reassured at this point, I'm, I'm not concerned that there's something emergent going on. You're gonna go home, you're gonna go to sleep and you're going to wake up the next morning. And that's really my job is to make sure that you are safe going home. But that begs the question, why are you having so much abdominal pain? So I, I get it. That could be frustrating that I'm standing here telling you everything's normal. 
one thing that I'm thinking is probably going on is that you have gastritis. What gastritis is, is it's acid buildup in the stomach. And there's no test for us to diagnose that. And it's actually what we call a diagnosis of exclusion, where if everything is normal and you're having that pain in the left upper area, like you're having the way that you describe, it's gastritis. And it's a very frustrating disease because even if you cut out, you know, I'll go through the, the food thing with them, which is something that residents overlook, right? I've had acid reflux as a pregnant woman and it's miserable. And especially patients with poor healthcare literacy are not going to understand that. And then knowing your patient population, I have a large Latin patient population. So explaining no spicy food can be extremely hard because they're thinking, well, how do I cook? What do I do? Um, diabetics, no rice, right? You, you, can't, you have to know your patient population. So having them watch me have this conversation, you know, we're going to give you some medication, but I'm going to be honest, it's not going to make you feel better right away because I gave you the medication here and it kind of helped, but it, it wasn't magical, right? This medication has to build up in your system. Um, and I'm being a little dramatic the way I'm talking about gastritis, right? From an ER doctor, you're going, what are you saying? But this is what your patients need to hear. They want to feel validated. They want to feel like you're hearing them and they need to understand expectations. So I'm gonna give you medication. It might take a week to work. It's gonna take a while for that acid buildup that you've accumulated to come down in your system. And the medication I give is good, but everyone's a little bit different. Pepsid works for me, Omeprazole works for you. Everyone, uh, what I give you might not work. So you need to follow up with a specialist. I think that's really important because if this works, that's great. You should probably taper off of it at some point. And then if it doesn't work, you might need to try a second line, a third line, two medication. This isn't the end of this. So, and again, just having them watch that whole conversation is a really great teaching point, uh, moment. And speaking of teaching moments, tell your learners that you're doing a teaching moment. So you can go a whole shift and give all this feedback. And at the end of the day, they go, I never get feedback. And I'm like, what in the world? So you can actually, for maybe some people who don't realize it, or if the teaching you're doing is subtle and say, look, I want to have a teaching moment with you right now. Something that I noticed is that, you know, you told me they don't have a UTI, but actually, in fact, if you look at this, this deeper, I actually think this is a UTI for X, Y, Z reason, right? So framing your teaching uh, can also be a super helpful tip um, for a, a, any teacher and their learner, that sort of relationship. So those are just some things that I like to spend a lot of time besides the usual, you know, helping with the central line, watching how I call consults. I'll sometimes take it from the resident and say, I want you, usually for junior residents, I'll say, I want you to watch me call a consult. Or we'll have a conversation about how are you going to call this consult. I think there's a lot of value in that as well, in either watching or teaching or prepping before that interaction. That's great. So it sounds like a lot of your approach to teaching is um, through trust and building up and helping them to be successful via kind of offline computer side teaching preparations for calling consults and then to make sure that they're not missing out on your expertise, allowing them opportunities to observe. And I think it's really um, something that I'm kind of mulling over right now of like pointing out when you're doing something so that people recognize that you're doing it, um, especially with teaching and feedback. Yeah. Definitely. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between mentoring, coaching, sponsoring, and the relationships that you have with the people that do these things for you? And maybe kind of from the role of a, a more senior resident kind of helping the more junior residents or a, a junior faculty kind of helping the resident. So, and is the question about how have I been mentored or how do I mentor? How do you mentor? Yeah. So 
in the question between mentoring and coaching and sponsoring, I'm not gonna get into those nuances because I think for residents about to graduate or junior faculty, senior learners, the biggest thing to talk about is mentorship. So, and I'm actually gonna talk a little bit about my mentorship because I think all of this kind of all goes together. So mentorship should happen naturally. You might be assigned mentors. We assign mentors when we first start residency because we just want you to have someone and the, the point is, you're going to end up having a lot of different mentorship relationships. I have a lot of mentors, and I reach out to myself as an attending, as a vice chair of education with some fancy title that someone gave me. Um, I still have mentors that help me in different areas of my life. And I know I can go to X person if I want to ask about financial sort of planning advice. I might have another one that when it comes to balancing, there's no work-life balance. We just do the best we can. But how do they, as a person who has young kids, manage career and kids, um, the stresses of being in academics and leaning in and leaning out? You know, I have someone that I know I could talk about that. I have someone that I know when it comes to career choices, I'll reach out to them and say, hey, listen, I'm not really sure where I should spend my time, what I should be doing. I'd like to talk about my one year, my five year plan. So uh, the point that I'm trying to make about my mentorship experience is that even as an attending, you need a mentor. So definitely as a resident and a junior faculty, you need a mentor and mentors. And that will likely happen naturally. You're going to look to people. You can get mentors uh, like anywhere. You go to a conference, you meet someone who just something about them and you say, hey, can I reach out to you? I have some questions and your talk, or I notice this about you, or you're having a conversation. Can I reach out to you later and pick your brain a little bit on this? And I have never to date found someone who has said no to me or to any of anyone that I know, because in medicine, we love to help. We love to teach. And we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for mentorship. So we're always happy to help someone else out. And you know, once in a while, you'll get a no because they're just overwhelmed and maybe they're going through burnout and they don't have it in them. But what I'm trying to point out is that you can find mentors anywhere and take any opportunity to get a mentor. You're at a conference. They gave a great talk. You talked a little bit. You had a moment of connection. Can I reach out to you? Boom, you have a mentor. You'll have definitely attendings or even senior residents that you work with at your institution. You can ask your faculty or your friends for other people. Hey, I'm kind of interested in public health, but we don't really have a public health person here. Do you know anyone, right? So mentorship isn't just this, this stiff, rigid thing. It's very dynamic. It should be really you driving, reaching out uh, because people, you know, I can think I need to help you with X, but you don't need help with X. You really want help with Y, right? So it should be up to the learner and the junior faculty, whoever, the, I'm going to say the learner, to reach out to people to ask for things from them. Um, it's definitely the most effective rather than people coming up to you. Like, doesn't everyone hate that attending who just like blabbers on about something and they genuinely think that they're helping and you're just like, can you stop talking? Like, I don't care about this or it's not relevant to me what you're saying, right? So it's really up to you to reach out and mentoring is instrumental, um, especially if you're a person of color, if you're underrepresented minority, if you're female, if you're a quiet personality, if you're not someone who's good at getting out there and getting things done and finding all these different opportunities, if you struggle for whatever reason with that, you need mentors to help lift you up, bring you with them, show you opportunities. I, I really think everyone needs multiple mentors. 
Sure, maybe if you just want it to be a community doc, you don't really need as much, but I would argue you still do. You might get burnt out. You're going to want different job opportunities. You might have questions. How do I handle being single coverage? And the one middle level I have is super weak. And I've got 15 um, patients in the waiting room. I've got 45 active patients in the ED. I've got 15 boarders. How do I handle this? Right. So even the and I'm air quoting like just the community doc, which I hate that term because there needs to be a ton of respect given to that position needs a mentor to help with different things. So seek them out, find people, they will likely say yes. And just keep looking out for these opportunities and reach out when you need them. And the one thing I will say is just be respectful of their time, right? So you probably don't want to burn out your mentor and try to, you don't want to talk to them once a month for an hour and a half, you know, every single month for an hour and a half for five years, right? Like that's going to be a lot for the mentor. So Try to know what you're going to ask them before you ask them. Maybe come up with a list of questions. You could even in an email prep them and say, hey, here are some of my thoughts. I want to get into this with you. But be mindful of their time as well because they might pull back because they can only handle so much if you really um, overuse that relationship. So I'm not saying don't reach out if you don't need it. I'm just saying be mindful of their time and maybe prep conversations that you know could be confusing or long with an email or a text before you have them so that you're not sucking up three hours of their day. Even for me who loves to help people, that would be a lot if that was a constant thing. Yeah. And it sounds like, especially if you can balance, you know, personalized asks of different mentors, you have a question in mind and you're going directly to the person that's going to be the most helpful in that particular area then maybe you can also kind of spread the wealth with your questions. And yeah. And, and once in a while, there might be a time, you know, I had a, um, uh, there was a point where I, I think I must have been on the phone for an hour and a half with my mentor and I felt bad and my mentor didn't care. He was great. Um, but it was a pivotal, a pivotal moment for myself and my career. And he took that time and uh, was okay giving me, I hope, I think that time because it was really important. So, and there's going to be times, you know, residents have called me and I'm on the phone talking them down the ledge and they're freaking out about something for like an hour. And I'm, you know, that's okay. It's just, you don't want to be doing this all the time. There's going to be moments where you need that much support and that's okay. It just shouldn't be all the time. Sounds great. Um, and you, know, you touched a little bit on um, people that may need more mentorship and, um, Maybe that's a good segue into kind of your talk on micro macroaggressions, um, racial and gender inequities in medicine. Um, and I know, I, I mean, I hope most people that are listening to this kind of know some of the differences between the micro and macroaggressions. And I hope that we're all calling out and addressing macroaggressions kind of with ease. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about kind of your approach to microaggressions where, you know, you could have five people in a room and only one person is noticing it. Um, how do you address them if you, you know, are observing it taking place for somebody else or if you are kind of the recipient of these more subtle situations? The first thing I will say is that I want everyone listening to understand that microaggressions happen to everyone, even if you are, and I'm married to a, I mean, I guess it's kind of tall, but tall white male. So I'm married to, I, I'm going to joke for a second, the enemy. But when we talk, and I say that because when we talk about microaggressions, I feel like there is a certain population that could feel either excluded or like they have become the enemy. And that's not the case. Microaggressions happen to everyone. 
Uh, the tall white male doctor is going to get microaggressed, and I'll get into the difference between micro and macroaggressions because he's so good looking. He must be gay. Why is he in medicine? Uh, I saw him taking some funny Instagram pictures. Um, he's so into his look. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just try to paint a picture that it happens to anyone. Guys are too buff. Guys are too skinny. Um, he's too aggressive. It must be because he's a white male, right? So this works in so many different ways. So I want to start off your question by explaining that the concept of micro and macroaggressions is applicable to everyone, even the tall white male, again, the enemy of my husband, I'm kidding. But so that's number one, is that it's an important concept to understand that it can and will happen to you. And also you wanna be an ally to people around you, right? We're hoping to build a culture where everyone feels included, everyone can be treated equal. And you know, one day something's gonna to happen to you that you might need a little help from your colleagues. You, know, you break a leg, you're on crutches at work, or, you know, just we're trying to build an environment that is just all inclusive and more helpful as opposed to everyone is like all, every person for themselves. Now, micro versus macroaggression. So macroaggressions are large scale, usually systemic um, uh, imbalances. So um, racism, apartheid, um, sort of this boys club and some, my husband's a lawyer and definitely in law, there's still that, you know, boys club mentality where um, depending where you work, it's a bunch of guys and the guys all get ahead and there's really this environment like that and the women get left behind and whatever. So it, it's just these larger, bigger issues. Um, like I said, I think racism is the biggest thing. Heteronormativity, the fact that when we talk, we assume that being heterosexual is the norm. Like these, these, this is a big concept countrywide issue that is not the focus of this. The question is how on a day-to-day -day basis do we deal with microaggressions? And so microaggressions by definition are small insults like you insinuated, these tiny insults that just like jab at people. But over and over again, it can really um, affect a person and you don't wanna have to deal with little jabs at people all the time. So examples of microaggressions. So the doctor being called nurse, the female doctor being called nurse is you know, a typical example. Um, people saying, um, so for some people with very um, uh, names that come from African descent, people can say, I can't say that. Can I call you something else? Can I touch your hair for, you know, people with different hair textures? There, I mean, there's a lot of different microaggressions, but the point is that they're kind of small insults. Um, men commenting on women's bodies and thinking that that is okay. Uh, oh, hey, you're a woman, you're probably going to have kids. So you're probably not the best person up for the job of promotion because you might, it's, it's all these small, subtle things that happen. And again, I, I can talk a lot about this, but that's not the point. The question is, is how do you handle them? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still learning. I um, had an uh, instance recently that I feel like I didn't know the best way to handle it. And that's okay. I'm still mulling over it and wondering how I, ca I can handle that or handle that situation in the future. So I'm saying that because there's not one right way to do everything. I try, like you said, to stand up for things if I see it. And hopefully your colleagues, if you're not the person who's getting microaggressed, if you see something happening, you can say something. Hey, this is Dr. Um, Smith. She is actually your doctor. 
I'm the student, I'm the nurse, or I'm the resident. Let's say you're a resident. I'm the resident and she's the boss. She's the big bad boss, the attending. So we're actually gonna look to her. You know, you can, you can say, and you don't have to make a big deal because, and there's a concept of victim blaming, which I don't wanna do. And I'm, we're not gonna get into that concept, but you also don't want to, you don't want to do something that will jeopardize the patient physician relationship. Although that doesn't mean that people need to get away with horrible things, right? But the point is that sometimes there's ways to diffuse situations or address things that aren't super confrontational. One of my mentors has at um, another talk on this sort of topic said, she'll sometimes approach these conversations with curiosity. And let's say a bunch of the nurses were saying, you know, that female resident, she is a you know, she's, uh, she's bossy, you know, she just thinks she can run this place and she's bossy. And again, don't get me wrong, the tall white male resident might get, he is just a, you know, piece of work. He just thinks because he's tall and he's white and he's got a loud voice that he could just run this show. So again, this can happen to everyone, but I'm going to take the bossy example. What I, what she has said that she does, and I've done it and it works well, is you can approach situations with curiosity and say, huh, it's really interesting that you say that because I was actually reading this article and maybe I'm a nerd, but there was a study that showed that when women do the same things that men do, we perceive them as bossy. And, you know, I actually know resident uh, Smith. She's actually super cool. And she's one of my favorite people to work with. But I do think sometimes just her asserting herself the way any other doctor would, people perceive it as bossy. And I wonder if it's because she's a woman. Or I wonder if it's because she's short and she, you know, and, and you might not get completely through to the person, but you're planting a seed, right? So that nurse might still leave that conversation saying, no, I think she's bossy and I think she's bossy. And they may walk away from that. But I guarantee you, whether it's now, in an hour, in a few days, they're thinking about that conversation, or maybe that happens a couple of times and then they go, wait a second, you know, maybe I'm just thinking she's bossy because she's a woman and that's not actually the case. So. I, I'm not saying you're going to get slammed on wins all the times, but that's another way that if you wanted to kind of subtly talk about it without causing a huge confrontation, you can. And sometimes you need to confront. Sometimes it's okay to confront. And sometimes bullies need to be taken care of um, with a pretty strong arm. And when you address a bully fairly strongly, they back down and never do it again. And I've had multiple of those instances. I think I'm fairly has been one saying fairly easygoing, but I think I'm fairly easygoing and I'm okay with most things. But once you push too hard, that's when I can kind of get pretty tough. And I've had a few instances where I've had to address things pretty strongly. And it was probably uncomfortable for some people to think about doing things that I've done, but then I've never had issues with people. They respect me, they're nice to me after. Um, so I think you have to read the scenario and sometimes coming with curiosity, sometimes just making a joke about it. Oh, I know, you know, I, I know just because I'm super tall and I've got a loud voice, I might seem like the boss, but actually she's the boss and she's super cool and empower the person next to you. And then once in a while, you have to stand up to people. Great, thank you so much. Um, I wish we had even more time. I've learned mm -hmm. so much from you in this um, short little period and look forward to learning more from you in the future. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for taking your time. Uh, and sharing with the RSA all this information. Thank you. And I'm glad and I'm here if anyone wanted to, you know, reach out and talk. This is how you get mentors, right? I'm here to talk and help any way I can.
Thanks for having me. Thanks. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine, residents, and students.